You're listening to the Redfield Arts Audio Podcast. Hello, this is Mark Redfield. Welcome to the podcast. On the podcast today, uh, I'm going to be speaking with author Gordon B. Shriver. He's written a marvelous book called Boris Karloff, The Man Remembered. It's a wonderful biography of uh, a beloved actor, a favorite actor of mine, one that I've got great respect for and I love his work. And uh, even if you don't know the work of Boris Karloff, I think you've probably heard his voice. You've probably heard him in the animated film, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And you probably know him because of his iconic image as the Frankenstein mob monster. (laughs) Almost did a little Freudian slip there with Frankenstein mobster, uh, one of our audio dramas. But um, for uh, fans of Boris Karloff, I hope you enjoy the conversation with Gordon. Uh, Boris Karloff, the man remembered, uh, can be found in hardback from the publisher, Bear Manor Media, or you can find it on Amazon. So without further ado, here's a chat that I had recorded on the telephone with Gordon B. Shriver. Enjoy. So tell me, I'm, I'm curious, it is obvious that you're a fan of Boris Karloff's. When did you, when did you discover Boris Karloff? Let me see. Well, I probably discovered him um, growing up. I was one of those baby boomer kids who watched creature features on TV stations in Chicago and uh, Oakland. And so uh, I read Famous Monsters growing up. So I was aware of who he and the other people in his group were, like Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney and Vincent Price. And uh, so I, you know, knew their work from growing up watching it on television. And then as I got older, um, uh, still reading famous monsters, uh, there was a, uh, well, he, he died and it was national news and there was a paperback book that Forrest Ackerman, the, uh, editor of famous monsters put out that I was given a copy of. And that's what really, uh, spiked my, uh, uh <laughs> near lifelong interest in him. So, uh, it was watching the films and the TV shows at first. And uh, as I said, so I was aware of who he was, but once um, uh, he was gone, I wanted to know more about this man. And that's what really uh, uh, kicked off uh, my, uh, my, my Karloff pursuit. <laughs> You're what is affectionately known. We're in a, uh, we're in a vintage age group um, that refers to themselves that grew up in the 50s and 60s with the resurgence and the explosion of, you know, the the film packages that had the uh, universal horror films or the, the, Mm -hmm. you know, all of the the smaller studios that were putting out thrillers and horror films. And of course, uh, along with uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, uh, all of the, the growth of the horror hosts on TV that would run these films late at night. And if you were anything like me, you, you struggled to stay awake sometimes. Yeah, so, yes. <laughs> so it really was. Yeah. So oddly and serendipitously, it was it was Ackerman's book that really. Yes. Who is this guy? Um, yeah. I yeah. I liked reading by right now. Was it, mm-hmm. What, what what was the what was it made up of? Uh, uh, short essays, little interviews. Y- yes, it was uh, largely. Um, uh, it, some of it was essays, some new material for that specific book, but largely it was um, uh, reprints from famous monsters or other um, fanzines at the time, um, and uh, some things from uh, oh, uh, like the Los Angeles Times or. Uh, uh, the Hollywood Reporter, um, certain trade publications that some things were taken from, and uh, there were little. There was a smattering of uh, little remembrances from his coworkers and close friends, um, some of whom I've mentioned already. And so, um, but it was largely uh, it said stuff from famous monsters, and uh, um, and 
uh, at the what was known at the time uh, all of his credits, um, and more were discovered later on than were known at the time. So that's what uh, um, uh, Forey uh, put together for this paperback book that he called the Franken Science Monster. The Franken Science Monster. That's right. That's right. Do you mm-hmm. recall the film that may have captured you uh, at about that time? And this is kind of a weird question because I don't want to ask your your favorite Karloff film, but is there <laughs> one about that time that, because it's interesting for me, I remember distinctly discovering, for instance, Lon Chaney in the third grade on uh, we were in Menominee, Wisconsin, and they were running silent films on a PBS station there. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. I remember distinctly seeing Hunchback of Notre Dame for the first time, Cheney's. And that was a revelation in a number of ways. And I needed to know more about him. He kind of stuck with me. So is there a film when you were a kid about this time that was that got you? Let me see. Well, that I had seen up until, uh, you know, 13 or 14, I guess. Um, I was almost 12 uh, when Boris died. Um, So uh, at that point, um, there was still a lot I had yet to see. But uh, no, there really wasn't um, a film that really uh, spurred me on. It was just, uh, um, you know, they were imaginative movies, which made them appealing to uh, young people growing up. And I mean, let's face it, kids love monsters. And so, um, uh, you know, once I was aware of who he was and I liked reading biographies growing up, um, uh, when I was, you know, reading in elementary school and junior high, I said I enjoyed book biographies. And so um, it was just his uh, uh, persona, um, this image, and who was this man uh, that held this image that uh, um, that motivated me? And the the fascinating thing is is that you're discovering him at a time when Karloff is ubiquitous. He's everywhere when you're ten to fourteen years old, because during this resurgence, there are model kits. Not just the monster magazines and that kind of thing. Karloff is on television. Um, American dramatic radio has changed, but he obviously, for people who don't really know the older, and I'm talking about then, who don't know the older horror films, have certainly heard his voice in mm-hmm. How the Grinch Christmas. But yes, he, uh, he is sort of mm-hmm. everywhere. And um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, I was going to say that the uh, the three things to me that really made him and still make him known to the uh, greater universe are um, are Frankenstein, um, um, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, um, and uh, and Arsenic and Old Lace. I mean, a TV show, a film, and a stage place uh, play. I mean, and those three things. Uh, have just kept him, you know, in the public eye for you know um, for several decades. Uh, and even if people don't know him from, say, this film, they know The Grinch, or if they've never seen The Grinch, they're old enough to have seen and 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 uh, and Old Lace. So uh, those three things, I think, are, are uh, career milestones that really cemented his image. Well, and it's also when when we talk about the 1931 Universal film Frankenstein, it's from not that early because marketing, but pretty much then, certainly through the 50s, 60s, 70s, to this day, the makeup that was created by Jack Pierce, yeah, uh, Karloff underneath of that, his face, his stance, that's what a lot of people immediately they know that image to be Frankenstein, which of course is yes, you know, the Frankenstein mo- monster. But it's it's and because it was ubiquitous, it was everywhere. Toys, stickers, games, and 
So even today, the very fact that a cartoon uh, drawing of the Frankenstein monster would have electrodes on its neck or something or have you know, elongated arms taller that yes. dance the square flat top head, that's all because mm-hmm. of, of Karloff's performance. That's not a bad legacy. When did you decide... Um, because you're you 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 become a fan of Karloff, and I'm probably tracking you much the same way. Um, seeing <laughs> Frankenstein uh, on television for the first time, uh, seeing him, uh, I even think I owned an album, um, and I think I still mm-hmm. have a couple LPs, long playing albums in my collection, where <clears throat> one of them is is uh, they're they're children's records. But uh, mm-hmm. when did you decide, let's jump ahead. When did you decide to write the book, uh, Karloff, well, Boris Karloff, The Man Remembered? Let me see. Well, um, I, uh, based on the, uh, um, the research I did in junior high and then into high school, I'd go to the uh, local and school libraries and haunt them, so to speak, um, just looking up any film book for uh, information on this actor named Boris Karloff. And uh, he'd only been dead a few years, so... Let's fast forward to about 1972. I'm 15. I'm a freshman in high school. And I thought, well, he's only been gone a few years. There must be uh, people who had known or worked with him who were still alive. So um, on a manual typewriter, I I wrote to um, these actors and directors whose addresses I found at the library and said, what do you remember about Boris Karloff? And I didn't know if I would hear from anybody. And the amazing thing which still surprises me 50 years later, is that they did. I mean, they didn't know me from anyone, um, but it just tells you how much Boris Karloff meant to these people that uh, who have very busy schedules and travel the world and all this kind of stuff, um, that they actually sat down to, uh, you know, to write a letter to this 15-year-old kid about Boris Karloff. And so I uh, took the research that I had and I wrote an article about him uh, while I was still in high school, and I submitted it to some little quarterly magazine I saw in a bookstore that did it was like a some sort of film journal, um, and uh, uh, I sent it to them, and they actually were going to publish it my senior year of high school, uh, just before I graduated. Uh, they were going to pay me fifteen dollars, but they said it was an excellent article and they really liked it. And then they went out of business. So um, being a little, you know, probably shoestring budget magazine. So um, I was, you know, not deterred. So I kept at it. And uh, while I was in college at San Francisco State, where I was a broadcasting major, I uh, wrote it some more, uh, added some more material, got hold of more people. And I submitted it uh, senior year of college to Famous Monsters. And before I graduated, uh, Forey Ackerman published it. So that was my first paid uh, publishing uh, uh, achievement of any, and my, um, you know, and and it was about Boris Karloff. So that was my uh, uh, first published writing on him. That's pretty amazing. So, and this, I'm trying to choose my words very carefully here because I in no way need, mean to denigrate. But in a way, it starts out of sheer fandom, just sheer admiration of this man and uh, the need to, you know, and again, this is hard to believe pre-internet when it actually was fairly easy to locate people. Uh, a little bit of digging and you could find an address. So you were writing to people uh, who you assume knew him, worked with him when he was still alive. Uh, do you remember the first people who got back to you? Uh, yes, I can tell you uh, the the first few. I remember. Uh, I can um, let me see. Well, in no particular order, but all around the same time of year, there was Jonathan Winters, whose show Boris had been on uh, shortly before he died. Um, uh, uh, there was Julie Harris, um, who had been on Broadway with him in The Lark. Um, Peter Bogdanovich. Um, had just finished shooting Paper Moon when he wrote to me um, and uh, was still writing the success of The Last Picture Show and uh, Robert Wise, who had directed Boris and the Body Snatcher. So uh, 
I know that all like for all four of them, and maybe a couple of others, um, uh, all got back to me in the same year. And uh, so uh, once I uh, um, had a job and finished college, uh, you know, I kept maintained my interest in Boris, um, you know, as a hobby. And so, um, uh, and uh, so I would just, uh, um, as, as I said, just as a, a hobby, as I said, I would still write to people when I could and contact them. And uh, again, all pre-internet, I was still writing to people in the 80s and 90s, um, for example. And then uh, uh, I was having a job and doing research. I was able to travel and go to places like New York and Los Angeles and Madison, Wisconsin, at the university there, which has a just one of the best theater film research collections in America. And uh, I was able to look at real personal papers of people who would work with Boris. So then I uh, uh, sat down uh, in, uh, let me see, around 1999 and took all this research and all these interviews. Some people I had to be able to talk to on the phone live. I sat down um, uh, using a, a used brother word processor at the time and, and wrote the book. And when was this? About what time was? Because that, that was something I was curious about, about when you then focused on, you know, this material needs to be in a book. So about when is this? I'm curious. Because yeah, this was a uh, late long, 90s. This is a late 90s. So this is a lifelong passion project for you. Yes, I met Sarah Karloff in uh, 1993, um, and we've been friends ever since. And Boris's widow and I uh, became pen pals in the early 80s. Um, I met Robert Block, Boris's friend and the author of Psycho, um, here in Atlanta, and I showed him the article I'd written for Famous Monsters and uh, about Boris. And uh, Block, who was so kind, said to me, has Evie seen this, meaning Mrs. Garloff, uh, whose name was Evelyn. And um, yes. I said, I wasn't aware she was still alive. And he said, yes, she, she is. She still lives in London. So I uh, found her address, if you can believe it, in the London phone book. And... Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, this famous actor's widow was in the London phone book. So I wrote to her, told her who I was and that Robert Block suggested I send her this. And she wrote back and uh, said she really enjoyed it. And, I, and you know, could she have another copy? And so uh, we started this correspondence for about 10 years off and on. Um, and she hand wrote all her letters and uh, she gave me little sidebars of information to fill in the gaps where I didn't have much information on certain things. And she gave me the addresses of some people she knew um, uh, that she and her husband had known. So through them, uh, through her, I contacted them, I mean. And so, you know, it's just one door uh, would lead to another door to another. So that's one of the things that's just amazed me about this whole a journey is just uh, um, <laughs> how it's progressed. That's really amazing. Um, and I wanted to point <laughs> out, this, I mean, it really, really is. And I wanted to point out to the casual, casual listener that uh, some of the earlier names that uh, Gordon had mentioned, uh, Julie Harris, of course, uh, a famous actor, uh, and in that specific case was on Broadway with Karloff in The Lark. Uh, and that's something I want to chat about about a bit is Karloff's stage career. You also mentioned Peter Bogdanovich early in your early correspondence. The mm -hmm. film you didn't mention, of course, is the film that Karloff is in that Bogdanovich made. And that was Targets, which is very, uh, a very contemporary film today, even. Yes, um, but a very different kind of film for Karloff to make toward the end. Of yeah, it was a very uh, when you think about it, looking back now, I mean, it was a low budget movie, but it's a it's a dark movie. It's a it's a dark subject because, yeah. it's, you know, it's about violence in America at a period where violence was just rampant in this country. Um, and uh, but, yes, it was Bogdanovich's first film that Roger Corman allowed him to make. 
and Boris owed uh, Corman a few days. So Corman told Peter, well, look, you've got uh, X amount of money. You've got to use Boris because he owes me work. And uh, you have to use some clips from an earlier film I did with Boris called The Terror, uh, which uh, Boris had done <laughs> with a then unknown Jack Nicholson uh, after yeah. they did The Raven. And so um, under those conditions, uh, Peter and his wife at the time you know, wrote this movie. I mean, he co-produced it. He directed it. And it's it like a, a semi-autobiographical movie because in the movie, Bogdanovich uh, cast himself as a director um, who wants Boris, who's playing an actor like Boris Karloff, to be in a film with him. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's Hollywood playing Hollywood. And it's uh, it was a little film. Um, it got some great reviews, but it was a um, uh, the studio um, thought it was box office poison, and so it became a cult movie. And Bogdanovich just three years later did the Last Picture Show, um, which made him famous. And I absolutely love Targets. And uh, the interesting thing is is that, uh, and I and I urge folks to go out and seek out targets the interesting thing is is that very knowingly karloff is playing it's very meta karloff is playing an aging uh horror movie star who's out of mm -hmm. thing and out of time with modern violence and modern horror particularly what's unleashed by a seemingly average normal american young man the interesting thing about this also to me in hindsight is that this is also the period of time when Bogdanovich makes targets. He's also with Orson Welles a lot. And they're working on that long gestating project, The Other Side of the Wind, which yes. again is looking in at New Hollywood and itself. Uh, Bogdanovich's role in that film is very similar. So all of that is percolating around that time. And I actually yes. love the terror as well. When I learned everything about the terror it's it's similar to uh you know the amount of directors that apocryphally apparently worked on it that even came in for a day or two it was all about again uh, uh an actor owing some time having some standing sets left over um it, it exactly. is a fascinating <laughs> little contraption that gets made that i really like you know I'm oh yeah i i think it's like i think it's probably the best uh, movie made in the better part of three days I've ever seen. I mean, Absolutely. it's got great sets. It's got the California coastline. It's in color. Uh, it's got Boris, um, you know, making the most of a, uh, let's face it, weak movie, a weak script. But, you know, oh, yeah. he, he just, you know, he just runs with it. And um, it, it's, uh, um, and considering, you know, what a star Nicholson became, I mean, uh, I mean, Jack is wonderful, but he's you know not exactly uh, doing Oscar work in it, uh, given the material. But but it, it's just great fun to watch. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely! You know, I'm, and I'm listening and I'm thinking about the the thrill it must be over those years to out of the blue get a piece of mail, either a return correspondence or something from someone you've written to. And the thrill of opening that up and then devouring what they've had to say. The fascinating thing yes. is that, that reading your book about Karloff and other things uh, and just being a fan myself over the years is that unlike other actors who have a very long career, which Karloff did, there is nothing as you look salacious about his career. It isn't fraught with and we have to touch on a contemporary that in so many ways is sometimes often brought up in the same breath as Boris Karloff, and that's Bela Lugosi. Mm -hmm. They, they yes. both find their stardom in a similar time period with Universal Pictures and Universal Fantasy uh, uh, horror films in the 30s. Uh, Bela, of course, is coming from a very different position, having done... Uh, the play, the, the Dracula that becomes adapted to film by Universal. Mm -hmm. But they both rise in stardom about the same time. They're both doing B pictures. They're both workaholics. They, they both, both came from other rise. countries. Mm -hmm. 
They came from their immigrants who came from other countries. Very distinctive voices, very distinctive looks, uh, mm-hmm. very good actors. I don't want to get into an argument about who is. I don't want to get into a favorite. You know <laughs> what I mean? Are you a Karloff man or are you a Lugosi man? Then you can join our club. Yeah, I, I, I don't do that either. <laughs> But when and and uh, Bela's life was shorter. Karloff, uh, workaholic that he was, worked until almost the very end when mm-hmm. uh, he did uh, retire and go uh, home, essentially to London. And he was, you know, in pain and he was in poor health as he was older. But the fascinating thing that uh, and there were multiple marriages, which you know is a very innocent thing. Um, because people mm-hmm. have numerous relationships, numerous girlfriends, uh, for a person to marry the five or six, seven people that he dated is is quite understandable and alien to us in the 21st century, maybe, where we think anybody who's had three marriages, well, something's wrong there. But you find, <laughs> you look at the rocks, you talk to people, you, you look at their lives, Lugosi accidentally well he had a problem and he and he had to get cleaned out uh because mm-hmm. of the drug addiction and then from that point there is film of lugosi very happy very enthusiastic to get back to work to follow his compulsion as an actor but there's nothing dirty nasty uh everybody loved boris karloff um yes uh I, the um, um the universal is that true Yes, um, it's just uh, yeah, it's hard to uh, find someone who uh, uh, didn't like him. Um, uh, I remember reading a quote years ago in Greg Mank's excellent book "It's Alive," which was a great examination of all the uh, Universal Frankenstein films. That it quoted um, uh, Lugosi's uh, widow, I think the last one, saying that uh, uh, this is her saying that she, her husband Bella thought that uh, Basil Rathlin and Boris were cold fish, um, uh, her words. And so, um, and I've rarely heard that uh, mentioned about either man uh, my entire life. Um, I mean, they were both very British gentlemen, but uh, it is, it, it's hard to find anything um, a negative about the man. I mean, uh, you know, we all have our faults somehow. It's just natural. But uh, Boris was just this, you know, uh, wonderful, kind, gentle, generous, um, uh, supportive, uh, you know, British gentleman. I mean, one of the things that impresses me about him is that he was just is how much of himself he gave to other people, Um, Mm. uh, whether it was a new director or some actor just starting out. um, He encouraged them. uh, Nehemiah Persoff, the great character actor who just died recently. Um, yeah, he was one of the pi- Yes, he, uh, Mr. Persoff was one of the pirates in Peter Pan on Broadway with Boris. Boris was Captain Hook and Gene Arthur played Peter. Well, uh, Mr. Persoff told me that uh, he went to a meeting of an early meeting of what became AFTRA, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. And there was nobody else there for the meeting, but Boris. And uh, he said, well, maybe there's been a mistake. And Boris looked at a flyer or something and said, no, this is correct. And Persoff didn't see any point in staying, so he left. And um, Boris stayed. And he said afterwards, Boris came to me and said he could understand Boris, uh, I mean, uh, of, of like experienced actors not wanting to come to the organization uh, meeting an organization that would benefit them, but he couldn't understand why, you know, starting uh, new actors just and actresses just starting out would not want to go to something that would benefit them. And he never forgot that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fascinating to touch on that for a moment. I, wa- I want to stop here and chat about something for a moment uh, before I go back to my other thought. Um, because <clears throat> Karloff... And this this will get us to uh, talking about the various stages of Karloff's life. He's, you know, he's not afraid of work. Uh, one of the things that we learn in your book about uh, Karloff's life is that 
when he did embark on a life to be an actor, he knew he had to make a living. He had to pay the bills. He had to eat. And so he was not afraid to take any work that came along that had nothing to do with being on stage later. You know, yes. Uh, he, he was willing to work in every medium. But the fascinating thing to me as a union actor is the fact that he was one of the original people uh, that put together the Screen Actors Guild. Um, and I actually believe he was in London working on The Ghoul when things finally, finally gelled. But he was there along with Ralph Morgan and the others. And obviously, mm -hmm. when when the organization comes together uh, uh, and the early presidents in the early years, because, you know, there is the there's a couple of thoughts that come to mind that I admire about Karloff and an actor who will take that risk. You know, the hours were longer and everything about the union was to protect the working actors. And even though. Karloff reaches a level of stardom and is kind of, and, and there are no guarantees in this business, but there is another job coming. They are still not getting residuals at that time for decades, and they won't. Yes. Thanks to, uh, thanks to Ronald Reagan, who was president of the Screen Actors Guild and sort of kind of screwed that up for a while. But mm -hmm. it was to control the hours, to protect actors make sure that they're fed, make sure they get paid on time because he came up through those ranks. We're going to touch on that in a minute. And I just wanted to end my babble about it by saying, I really do think that Karloff would be very proud when the two unions did merge a number of years ago, SAG and AFTRA. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it continues to be hard gains made, but, um, you know, Boris Karloff was one of the first eight to 18 individuals, uh, various levels, no famous people yet, really, uh, mm -hmm. to create to create uh, the, the actors' unions. Because equity, the stage actors' union, or the, 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 there was nothing they could do. They, 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 had no, they had no bargaining position with the studios. But yes, anyway, no recourse. Or, yeah, but this leads me to, as you if you live and accumulate this research over a period of time, you're now opening up all of these things that you didn't know about Karloff that most of us didn't know unless we were living through it. Is there a period of his life, and I'm kind of, this is a leading question in a weird way, <laughs> because I do want to talk about his early stage career and his early stage work. Um, is there something that you would have, and that of course dovetails into early Hollywood, work is work, because he was still a day laborer doing things once he finally decided to stay in Los Angeles, if I'm not mistaken. But is there a period of his life where you would have liked to have been there to, to experience him? And I guess that could only be really his stage work. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, uh, um, uh, um, it's hard to believe, but last year marked 80 years since Arsenic and Old Lace premiered on Broadway in New York. And yeah. um, uh, uh, I uh, would have just, you know, um, loved to have seen him in anything, but to see him in that part, uh, which where he's um, playing a character who, as you know, uh, kills somebody because the man said he looked like Boris Karloff. Um, I mean, that, you know, I mean <laughs> it's just it was just genius casting and to have seen him in that landmark role uh, would have been just wonderful, but I would have, uh, but as his uh, uh, talent developed, um, I would have loved, uh, I I'd probably to answer your question, I'd probably say um, the fifties um, when he went back to doing, uh, continued doing stage work, um, and good stage work, I should add, because he was in Peter Pan, as I said, in 50. And then in 55, uh, he did The Lark with Julie Harris and Christopher Plummer, uh, in which he got his only Tony nomination of his entire life. Um, so that that period, um, I'll, I'll say late 40s um, to mid 50s, uh, I, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall or in the audience. Absolutely, because he's also doing radio drama. 
I mean, he's just grabbing work wherever he can. And the fascinating thing I think about Boris here is that, if I understand correctly, your, your, your book reminded me of some things. You know, he learns his craft. He learns to act on the stage in front of an audience in doing all yes. of the theater. When, um, and you can elaborate on this, but uh, when he does decide he's bitten, if I understand it correctly by, by what I read in your book, he, like so many actors, was bitten at a very young age. And yes, he really, uh, was taken yeah. to, um, uh, to see Peter Pan as a child when he was growing up in London. And he had a very, uh, not very happy, stern Victorian childhood, being the youngest of several children and um, stuff. So his home life wasn't particularly uh, happy. But as, I, but as I started to say, he did see Peter Pan as a child, and it just opened up a whole new world to him. And uh, so early on, he became fascinated with theater, and there wasn't anything else he wanted to do once he became, uh, you know, uh, an adult. And so, uh, and that made him the black sheep of the family. So the only choice he had was to uh, leave the country and go to either Canada or Australia. And so he went to Canada, as it turned out, and just doing day labor, breaking horses and that kind of thing. Um, uh, digging ditches. He never had any formal acting training whatsoever. So it was by, you know, going around Canada and eventually coming down to California, working for traveling theater companies in small towns, um, uh, you know, uh, with just probably glorified community theater, um, that he just uh, learned his craft and uh, bit by bit. But he, he, it was a good memory. Uh, he had a good memory. He knew his lines well, and uh, um, and it just uh, um, gradually he just became noticed. And uh, but he he really was a great man of the theater, and that, that's one part of his career. I think he would have liked to have done more of uh, had he had the opportunity to do so, uh, because the uh, he loved the roles he did. In uh, you know, that made him famous, but it did typecast him, and I think to some extent um, it uh, hurt his career uh, in a subtle way. And it's interesting. I mean, you know, he and and I have an opinion, having acted for a little while now, that you see, I think that, and I and I understand, Gord, where you and I come from at a certain point in in. American theater history coming up, you know, through the 60s and 70s and what is institutionalized. But frankly, I think learning to act, learning your craft, the two catchphrases, in front of an audience, I think doing it is what teaches you. I think that's the formal training. Um, you know, in the, mm -hmm. in the starting in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, undergraduate programs, you know, theater programs pop up around the country graduate programs get put into place there really isn't the apprenticeship in the theater anymore theater companies are dissolving over these decades that that you and i are coming up and so so mm -hmm. i think for an actor to learn by doing it the audience teaching them is great and karloff well neither name boris or karloff is his birth name um, mm -hmm. and um, there is a little mystery as to where all that comes from. Is that true when, when he decided yes, to use in, that name? In everything I've seen in my entire life about him, um, uh, there's, I've never seen an iota of uh, uh, anything to substantiate where he got that name. Um, he used to say in interviews, and Boris um, uh, was very open to interviews, Interviewers, but he was a private man, and he kept his private life private. So there were things he just did not talk about. Um, but uh, he he used to say uh, that uh, Karloff came from somewhere uh, on his mother's side of the family, but the genealogy doesn't bear that out at all. And uh, Boris was apparently his own idea. So he, uh, wherever it came from, um, it was just a a flash of genius for him to come up with that name, uh, which people still know, um, you know, to this day. 
but uh um so he had a, a somewhat you know uh let's say mysterious for lack of a better word um uh element in some ways but uh um uh, so who knows as i said where the name came from but uh his well, real nowadays, name was william henry uh, pratt and, and he said you can't be an actor and have a last name with of pratt <laughs> particularly if you know the the british slang but you know mm-hmm. in, in the 21st century um we are in a world of branding and we're in a world of influencers and uh, all of these new types moving and shaking that are tangentially you know within the entertainment industry which crosses over to the commercial industry but it's fascinating to me that in a very clear way William Henry Pratt branded himself clearly and distinctively from the very beginning. Uh, mm-hmm. You point out in your book that, you know, his appearance, even as a young man, thin as he was, the gaunt, his face, his accent, what is referred to casually by everybody and by imitators as his lisp. Mm-hmm. He was very distinctive person. Yeah, yes, he didn't look like anybody. Mm-hmm. Yes, and he didn't look like name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm sorry. I just wanted to get out that he 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 uncannily branded himself with that stage name, and because as you you know, he's billed at the height of his horror career in the 30s and 40s as simply Karloff. You know, like Cher or like, you know, Topol or, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's quite fascinating. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, you'd see posters that would say, you know, Gable, Davis, um, Cooper, you know, whoever. And uh, but you're right. He was just billed at the height of his career by simply his last name. And um, and uh, as a, and he he didn't uh, look like you know, your average um, young man coming into Hollywood, um, you know, he just uh, um, he wasn't an American. Uh, he didn't grow up here. He didn't talk like an American. So he was just uh, uh, different. And I think, as you point out, that these, these differences, the name, the voice, um, those unmistakable eyes. I mean, uh, Cheetah Rivera worked with him on television, was a fan of is a fan of the original Frankenstein, and she told me nobody had eyes like Boris Karloff. Um, and uh, so, you know, those things just, uh, you know, fascinated people. I mean, and and it's just, uh, um, you know, Ed Asner did a film with him in the late 60s with Robert Vaughn, and Asner said he was just fascinating to look at. Hmm. And and here's something that pops into my head that is specific and peculiar to Karloff that would. How old was Karloff when Frankenstein was released in 1931? So Boris was my, my yes. How old was he? He uh, Boris at the time uh, Frankenstein opened was 44 years old. He wasn't just some you know young hotshot like today who comes out of uh you know uh drama school at let's say 25 and um uh you know hits it big early like people just for example like Kevin Bacon or Tom Cruise did i mean Boris paid his dues and uh literally and uh it was uh, so he you know he was in his he became an overnight success in his mid 40s and was still uh, a household name at 81 when he, uh, you know, made his final exit mm-hmm. and passed away. Yeah. So, and that is encouraging that he, because I, you know, I was babbling, we were talking about his stage beginnings and, and where he was learning how it goes as he's cast as villains and this kind of thing. But this is a process. And so, not only that, but then by the time he gets to Los Angeles, he's he's working technically in silent films, and um, you know there there are fascinating things to learn in your book about uh, his life. Where um, 
In Los Angeles, one could do both stage and film, and one fed the other, uh, and the early roles uh, that happened to him around the time of Frankenstein's uh, making and release by Universal. And then pretty much, like I said, you know, nothing is guaranteed in this life, particularly for an actor, but he, I think, was already, what I'm sensing from your book is that work, he was not afraid to work. If he needed to make a buck and unpack boxes, if he needed to do something with horses, road work, truck driving, he took the job. And he was willing to do that as an actor uh, because... I yes, he and he would work. And um, yeah, I've, I've read, for example, that Spencer Tracy hated going on location. He, he just preferred the Hollywood studio. He did not like location shooting. But Boris, um, I mean, he went anywhere for work. Um, what even after you know, he uh, he achieved fame, I mean, um, uh, I mean, he went to uh, uh, you know in the fifties he went to Alaska to do arsenic and oil lakes. Um, he went to Puerto Rico to do uh, arsenic and on borrowed time, two plays he was very good in. I mean, um, uh, wherever the work was, uh, even into his old age, I mean. He went to Spain at 80 to make an episode of I Spy. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, just that dedication, um, even by today's standards, is still amazing. And, you know, there is that gap because once the regular paychecks, even though they are not commiserate to other stars of the period, nor are there residuals as television begins to appear over the horizon in the 40s and 50s. And then the, the, the smart business move to repackage movies because Hollywood was not, uh, you know, as we all know who love film, you know, Hollywood was reckless about keeping things. You know, most of our films mm -hmm. are lost. And, um, mm -hmm. but there is that leap before Karloff goes back to the stage. And I should point out, by the way, because the photographs are fascinating to me. I love the way what his Captain Hook looks like. But I should point mm -hmm. out to the listener that it is not the famous Broadway musical we're talking about. There was a straight adaptation that Karloff uh, was was in prior to that. And that's that's the Karloff Peter Pan that we're talking about. Yeah, that's correct. Because it was more a straight play, as you said, with some songs. Whereas Mary Martin's, the later version that people remember from television, with Cyril Richard right. as Captain Hook, that was a uh, correctly a full-blown musical. Now, before we talk about anything else, I wanted to, uh, was it you who mentioned to me years ago that you have a <laughs> recording of, of one of the productions of Arsenic and Old Lace? Um, uh, uh, yes, I, uh, I've got, uh, um, I have on, on video. Um, I, uh, uh, a little, not the whole show. I have a little of the first version he did for television. Um, he did it oh. three times on, on television. First time was in '49, and uh, that's the uh, abbreviated version I have. But the I also have the uh, full later version, the last of the three that he did for the Hallmark Hall of Fame in 1962 with Tony Randall as Mortimer. Um, that one does exist and is in some archives and is also on YouTube. And But I, I do have a copy of that. Um, in fact, the first time I saw it was um, in 1996 when Sarah Karloff, her husband, and I saw it at the UCLA television archives. Ah. Sarah Karloff is wonderful. Sarah Jane Karloff, um, I've been able to meet her several times and, and talk to her and and yeah um, she is we we you know the three of them we have mutual friends in the horror classic horror film community she's really mm -hmm. really marvelous i have two questions for you sort of double-barreled so, so uh, they're similar um in all of the work and all of the research this lifelong process of who is this man that you remember in your book um I'm I'm curious what is the biggest what is your biggest surprise takeaway that you well, didn't expect Pro to find mm -hmm. um probably uh how much of himself he gave to other people 
Um, I've already mentioned, you know, his uh, love of work um, that took him all over the world, uh, even despite uh, distances and later on uh, uh, ailments like arthritis and emphysema. But it's really how much of himself. I mean, um, some uh, veteran actors, you know, were very impatient with uh, new directors and stuff like this. Uh, I just heard Spiel, Steven Spielberg recently talking about how uh, nice Joan Crawford actually was to him when he directed her for Night Gallery, and, and he was just 21. But Boris just um, was just so supportive of other uh, actors. I mean, um, uh, in terms of uh, 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 one point, Susan Strasberg was doing a television show with him in the 50s, and she said the director, who will be nameless, um, was – yelling say like you know pick it up faster faster you know <laughs> and uh just kind of having a you know a complex about it and she said boris said to her carry on as usual um and uh it's little things like that i mean uh uh even in the 50s um one director for television said because of his age i would tell boris why don't you come in at 10 o'clock um, and Boris would be there at seven or eight in the morning when everybody else showed up. Um, mm. and, uh, um, so it was just, uh, um, you know, he, he didn't mind doing another take, uh, when, uh, you know, he did a wonderful take for targets with Peter Bogdanovich and he, you know, was tired and it was late. And, you know, he even said, well, you know, do you want another one? And, uh, so I think they did one, but, you know, it wasn't necessary. And uh, um, so just he was just um, uh, so uh, and Julie Harris, um, who just adored him and vice versa, when they did the Lark on Broadway, because she was the lead in the show playing Joan of Arc, she had the, the, the star dressing room and she insisted that that dressing room go to Boris. She would not accept it. Um, and, uh, and so he got the, the big dressing room and Christopher Plummer has even said one night we were waiting for Boris to show up and everybody really was concerned did something happen or what? And so they're all in the catwalks and in the hallways wondering where is Boris and Boris walks in and there was just like this, uh, almost like a wave of applause because they just respected the man so much. Marvelous. What is your here's the, here's a three part question. You've you've been living and admiring the work of Karloff for fifty years. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Um, what now at the hour? Let me put it this way. <laughs> what, because there is a difference. What are your favorite, what's your, maybe your favorite one or two Karloff performances? Maybe it's not the same as favorite Karloff films. And if I was brand new to the planet, if I was a film fan, <laughs> uh, a horror fan, and I was 18 to 25, what film would you sit and say, watch this? This is your introduction to Boris Karloff. And it can uh, be a good question, one. Mark. It can be it can be a it can be a Christmas stocking of films. But what what would you want me as a, a newbie to see to be introduced to Boris Karloff? Let's start there. Okay. Well, um, let me see. I would probably uh, um, well, my my gut reaction would be uh, the Bride of Frankenstein. Um, I mean, he's mm -hmm. uh, I think because I think it's an even better film than the first one, uh, which is kind of creaky in places and almost, it was almost like a film stage play in, at times, uh, despite his brilliant performance. But uh, his performance in um, uh, The Bride of Frankenstein fleshes out the monster character so well that I think that is just an absolute must because nobody, you know, really after him uh, 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 pulled off the role to the extent uh, of, uh, that he did in that. Um, a must would be uh, The Body Snatcher. Um, uh, it's just, it's his last film, Bela Lugosi. It's extremely well-written. The dialogue is just beautiful. And it, he's so understated in it. That's one thing about Boris's career is that um, um, he, he's really a very 
subtle, understated actor who is, you know, typecast in uh, horror and villain roles. But in uh, The Body Snatcher, playing this uh, man who steals bodies, you know, for the medical school, I mean, he's kind to children and animals, but this is what he does in his off hours. But he just underplays it so well that you almost can't help but like the man, despite the horrible things he does. And the way he taunts um, his old nemesis, Henry Danielle, in it, I mean, it's like a couple of snakes that he, you know, going at each other. Um, uh, I would put, um, let me see, well, Targets uh, is just a brilliant performance because he's playing a Boris Karloff character. And uh, it's he's just, um, you know, nearing the end of his career as Boris was. So, um, and he's just, he's deeply moving um, uh, in the movie because uh, there's nothing, to me, in his best performances, he's so smooth that he doesn't look like he's acting. And so uh, those are three I would put in a time capsule. And I would also add uh, The Black Room, where, um, and this is a remarkable feat for any actor, but he plays two, uh, he plays twin brothers, one good, one bad. Uh, and um, it's just watching him in just a you know, movie that's not even you know two hours long play both these characters. It, it, it's really amazing for any actor to pull off. Those are excellent. I haven't thought I, it, it. It didn't pop into mind. The Black Room. I, I think that's great. Bride of Frankenstein is my top favorite fantasy film. It just flat out mm -hmm. is um, of all horror. It just always ends up number one, and I think that tells you yes. about me that, that it's a brilliant film. The Body Snatcher, mm -hmm. based on Robert Louis Stevenson's story. That's uh, Robert Wise. Yeah. Yes. Director. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, but it's not funny, but it's the contrast in performances uh, between um, Karloff as Cabman Gray and Henry Daniels. There is a, there is a, there is a, and I, and I'm gentle here, but, but there's a stagey, there's a quality about Henry Daniels' performances and all of his performances in the 40s. But there is something alarmingly contemporary about Karloff's work. And I, and I, mm -hmm. uh, and, and yeah, it's funny that I, that we, we bring up targets again. Um, but those are great choices. And I would agree. They would be perfect for a newbie or a time capsule. And we didn't yes, get a his films. No, go ahead, please, please. Yeah, I was going to say, Boris's uh, films, um, uh, he didn't make that many in the 50s because he was working on television. Uh, in fact, he's one of the first actors to even literally start doing television. Um, but he worked on the small screen and on the in the theater so much in the 50s that he made few films. And so his 50s movies are largely um, not worth seeing. I mean, uh, it's... You know, they're just not all that good, except the uh, two of the later ones, Carters of Blood and ha The Haunted Strangler, both of which were filmed in England, are very good period pieces. And he's quite good in those. So those are worth seeing because you, uh, he was always so good in uh, period movies, um, you know, things set in old England, like The Body Snatcher, like The Black Room, you know, like The Old Dark House. Um, he was just so good in that setting, is my point. And so, um, uh, um, so the films in the fifties aren't that great. They pick up in the sixties because he's working with Roger Corman and Vincent Price and Peter Laurie, um, and uh, and even some of his uh, a couple of his TV appearances that I've seen, um, I would show somebody because you see what a uh, a serious uh, actor he could be in a straight role. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, that period in the 50s when maybe the output of films is less than stellar and not so, you know, this is putting food on the table and keeping the bills paid because, you know, he's doing great theater work in that time, you know, so there's always solid work as an actor coming from him. But I was going to mention the one thing we didn't get a chance to and what I think we ought to do on a whole other show is talk about, and it's my predilection these days, 
we should talk about Karloff on the radio and radio drama because he did it yes, enormously. Exactly. And he was in all kinds of things. Yes, he was in a lot of the mystery and thriller and straight up horror uh, audio drama. But um, that's that's a whole other thing that shows a, a range as distinctive as his accent and voice was, you know. Yes, uh, I uh, remember meeting uh, years ago. I met uh, Hyman Brown, uh, who was the uh, producer of Inner Sanctum and Bulldog Drummond yeah. and Dick Tracy. And uh, um, I, uh, as I pointed out earlier, I was a broadcasting major, and I met him when I was in college. He was talking about working in radio, and he was a wonderful speaker. But I went up to him and um, asked him what he remembered about Boris Karloff, and he said he was the one. He, his words, he said he was the most wonderful man who ever lived. And then later he wrote to me and said, uh, referring to radio and touching on what you just said about Boris's versatility. He said, I could cast Boris in anything um, because he could play anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's promise that sometime we'll do another chat just about the audio stuff and play sure. examples for the audience. I would love yes, to. Yes, um, because I mean, just that, you know, with that God given voice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which takes us right back to a lot of childhoods of any epoch, uh, any age that gets some Grinch every Christmas. Um, that is that alone. If you're typecast are known for one thing and uh, the, the videos, the DVDs, the Blu-rays, the streaming, the, you know, the original mm -hmm. Jump Jones cartoon of the Dr. Seuss and you hear. Karloff's, you know, beautiful voice narrate that story. Um, there's a new generation hearing him annually. Yes, which is pretty fast. Exactly, and uh, Chuck Jones wanted nobody else but Boris to narrate that. Um, mm. uh, Jones had heard Boris's wonderful recording on vinyl on LP records of the Jungle Book, um, and he liked it so much. Um, that's what made him think, okay, I want Boris to do the Grinch, and. Uh, uh, CBS, typical network, uh, you know, um, attitude for some reason. I don't know why, but it, CBS at first balked at having Boris narrate the Grinch. Uh, again, maybe it was just the uh, horror uh, image that was reinforced in their minds. But Chuck Jones said in so many words, I don't want anybody else but Boris Karloff to do this. And they caved. And, of course, um, you know, uh, history was made right there within a half hour cartoon. Mm. Which, if I remember, was done on two takes. I don't think they labeled, and it seems inevitable now. You know, um, you hear it once, you, we grew up with it, we've lived with it. I share it with kids in my life all the time. It seems inevitable. Who else would narrate that? It's just, yes. uh, you know, and there were a lot of great voices that we heard a lot of in that period, mm -hmm. Hans Conrad and other other voices. But um, it, it seems inevitable now. Gordon, it's fantastic talking to you. I, I, I really love and I hope the listeners enjoyed and, and they go out the book um, that we're talking about that Gordon wrote. Uh, I've mentioned this earlier in the podcast is uh, Boris Karloff, The Man Remembered, and you can find it on Amazon or at Bear Manor Press, as I mentioned earlier. But Gordon, thank you so much. It was wonderful talking to you today. Oh, thank you, Mark. The pleasure was mine. And I'm glad to you know, share my interests of this wonderful man with someone else who uh, does and uh, with, you know, people uh, who just uh, maybe beginning to learn about him and maybe it'll spur them to uh, see or read or listen to the stuff we've been talking about. Thank you so much for joining us and listening to the Redfield Arts Audio Podcast. Um, I want to thank our guest today, Gordon B. Shriver. You had a wonderful conversation talking about Boris Karloff and about his new book, Boris Karloff, The Man Remembered. As I mentioned earlier, it's available on Amazon. You can order a copy or directly from the publisher, Bear Manor Media. This is Mark Redfield. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Until next time, be safe and be well.
playing in a film at Universal and James Whale was the director of Frankenstein and uh, he saw me in the makeup, well rather in the lunchroom and um, I had my best makeup on, straight makeup, and what I thought was my best suit. I was playing a different kind of part. And he invited me to his table to have a cup of coffee and said he would like to make a test of me for the monster. And I thought, well, that doesn't speak very well of my nice straight makeup and my good suit. However, I was delighted. And uh, they had a fine makeup man at the studio, a man named Jack Pierce. And he experimented and worked on the makeup all for two or three weeks really before he said now we are ready you can photograph it mm -hmm. and and they liked the makeup the test and I got the part and that's how it started how did you make out with Frankenstein did how, you like the, the the person you had to interpret oh yes it was it, it, it was a, it was a great challenge and tremendously interesting because here was a completely helpless, inarticulate, lumbering, helpless creature in a strange and hostile world without speech and he had to communicate to people and it was a challenge to find some way to do it. How did people react to Frankenstein? Well, the film itself, of course, was an enormous success mm -hmm. and um, they had made all told, this is Universal, who sort of first made the Frankenstein, They've made all told, I suppose, at least a dozen of them. But I only played the monster in the first three because I felt there wasn't much left to do in the character. It was getting less and less and less. A monster series could be of an appeal to the public. Do you explain the reason of the success of the series? Yes, I think I can. We know that fashions in plays and in films and in stories change. They go in cycles, then they die out, then they come back again. But this kind of story, not, not of necessity the monster, but this kind of story seems to go on forever. And I've often wondered if the real reason isn't that it's the oldest kind of story in the world, really, that it has its roots very deep in the legends and the fairy tales and the folklore of every race in the world and has a universal appeal. And I think that's why they go on, mm -hmm. in, in one form or another. Now, they go on without you because you only made the first three. Don't you regret the monster tales? Uh, no, not really. The monster turned out to be the best friend I ever had. He changed <laughs> the whole course of my life. Mm -hmm. I was an obscure and struggling, unknown actor. Then all of a sudden I get this marvelous opportunity handed to me with all the help and assistance that I could ask for. And uh, in my career, my work hasn't stopped since. 32 years later, you are asking me about him. Now, who could ask for anything better than that? Redfield Arts Audio.